please rise in body or in spirit. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, says the Spirit, for they rest from their labors and their work follow them. Let us worship the Lord our God. God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. God's greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall laud your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. I will 
take. God of the ages, we praise you for all your saints who have done justice, loved mercy, and walked humbly with their God. For apostles and martyrs and saints of every time and place who in life and in death have witnessed to your truth. For saints unknown who by their faithful obedience and steadfast hope have shown the same mind that was in Christ Jesus and who now rejoice with you on another shore and in a greater light. At the last, bring us with them to share in the inheritance of the saints in life through Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. You may be seated. Grace to you and peace and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. We greet one another in the name of Jesus Christ both those of us gathered in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in Christ's name. And because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, no qualifying adjectives whatsoever are attached to this word of welcome. All are welcome in God's house. We ask everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the friendship pad, which you'll find located on your pew. Sign it, send it down and back again, then we will have the advantage of each other's names. Also, if you are worshiping online, you will find on the same page as the worship prompt a virtual friendship pad. We would love to know who is worshiping with us online, as well as those of us here in the sanctuary. I'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a short ramp. And there you will find our deacons have prepared light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity for us to engage with one another face-to-face in conversation as the family of God. I'd like to highlight a few things from your bulletin, from the announcements portion, and a few things that are not in the print version, but are nonetheless relevant to our life together. The first is to note that today is one of our TNT brunches, so if you are 20s or 30s and you would like to gather for brunch, then simply meet up with the TNTs, either in Old Buttonwood or perhaps in the Narthex, and you can go to brunch together and enjoy that time together. You'll note as well that we have some concerts upcoming uh, this next weekend. We have Lyric Fest here in the sanctuary on Saturday at 3 p.m. And on Sunday, we have a concert by Andrew Sin and Edward Landon Sin at 2.30 in the sanctuary on that day. And I am told that Lyric Fest does provide comp tickets for those who are members of the congregations who are hosting them. So you can contact Lyric Fest to receive a complimentary ticket to attend that concert next Saturday. Our season of celebration of the history of this building is ongoing, and so we will have a tour of this building being led by Michael Smith at the conclusion of this service. You just simply gather here in the sanctuary, and Michael is going to talk about the symbolism that is in this building today, so you won't want to miss that because it is rich with symbolism. And finally, I ask you to mark your calendars in advance, well in advance, for a Between the Services brunch on December the 11th. 
That particular brunch is a very special one because on that day we will celebrate the ministries of Megan and Annie Lecluse, who will be concluding their service in our congregation on the 31st of December of this year. So having served seven and six years between them, uh, we certainly want to celebrate all of Ma Annie and Megan's contributions to the life of our congregation. So please plan to come at 945 on the 11th of December to have brunch together and most importantly to celebrate Annie and Megan. With all of these things noted, let us now continue our worship with our confession of sin. Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, looking to Jesus in penitence and faith. Let us pray. Holy God, remind us of our baptism as we prepare to come to your table. Remind us that you have formed us with your own hands, made us in your own image, and placed us in this world to be stewards of your good creation. Made for generous relationships, we have retreated into ourselves. Created for purposes of making your goodness known, we allow lesser tasks to occupy our time. Forgive our failure to live the way you made us to live. Renew within us the knowledge of your love so that we may live joyfully, sharing what we have. For we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, who offered himself for us and opened to us the way to eternal life. God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which God loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Thessalonians, the second chapter. Listen for God's word to us this day. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters beloved by God, by, by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, he called you through our proclamation of the good news, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, Comfort your hearts and strengthen them for every good work and word. The second lesson from Haggai, the first chapter. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made to you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Thanks be to God. 
Our gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, the 20th chapter, beginning at the 27th verse and continuing through the 38th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and died childless, then the second, the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the, de from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord uh, as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> A question is posed to Jesus. Suppose a woman is married to a series of brothers in turn and finally dies. In death, whose wife will she be? What a peculiar question. It's a little creepy, to be honest. Sticking strictly to the story, <clears throat> we know that this question amounts to little more than a gotcha game between opposing factions within the Jewish community. Knowing that, it seems a poor basis for much of what we say about the resurrection of the dead. 
And yet, when we are casting around for a word about what happens to us when we die, what happens to our loved ones when they die, we will excuse the oddness of the question if it gives us comfort of a lasting nature. I suspect the question of what happens to us when we die becomes an important question for all of us at some point or another in our lives. How we answer it says a great deal about what we believe about God. And so I will attempt to give as much of an answer as I can today with this caveat. The Bible is not overwhelmingly concerned with what happens to us in the moments after death. The mechanics are by no means clear. The Bible is much, much more concerned with how we live and turns its attention thus. So my caveat is this. We will likely not satisfy the deepest recesses of our curiosity about death today. But if we take seriously the promises of the gospel, we may well leave with our hope renewed. Let's start with some context for that odd question posed to Jesus. It's important to start with a biblical understanding of marriage, and by that I mean fasten your seatbelts. It's about to get really, really bizarre. In the Bible, particularly the earliest text that we have, love marriage is a completely alien concept. Uh, to be honest, marriage between only two parties is a completely alien concept. Marriages were arranged. Remember Isaac and Rebekah? Remember Jacob and Rachel slash Leah? Remember David and all of his wives? Love might have happened, but Preservation of property and preservation of lineage were the primary concern of marriage. Consequently, in the ancient Hebrew culture, the practice of leveret marriage was developed. The basic idea is exactly what you heard from the scriptures today. If a man died without an heir, his brother was obliged to marry his widow and provide offspring to preserve the property. The first male offspring of that union would become the deceased brother's heir and would inherit with it the responsibility of caring for his mother during her dotage. Now, we shouldn't judge the ancients by our rules, but this has the potential to completely reshape how you see the Hebrew scriptures. Whatever our sympathy to the poor woman in this story, it is sympathy for any woman in the Bible in an impossible situation. And there are plenty. So these Sadducees, these Pharisees, dreamed up this scenario and questioned Jesus about what happens to a woman so unlucky in life and in marriage. After her brothers-in-law turned husband died, she in turn died as well. Now remember, this is just a test case on the Torah. It is a hypothetical situation. It is a question 
not about the woman's marriage, but about what happens to us when we die. The Sadducees, holding only the Pentateuch as their scripture, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, say there is no resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees, who add the words of the prophets and the writings, say there is. They turn their question on Jesus, and no matter how he answers, somebody is going to get mad. Twice before in this chapter, Jesus was faced with gotcha gain questions. Twice he was deemed to have answered wisely. So as Jesus answers, he begins by pointing out that the question is absurd. Here's a paraphrase of what he said. You are thinking about how things happen in this world, and here in this age, we're obsessed with the continuation of life because death is a reality of life in this age. But in the age to come, there's no more death. So you're asking the wrong question. And she isn't anybody's property in the age to come. Every other time in this chapter, when Jesus was faced with a trick question, he turned the question back on his interrogator. But here, on this question of what happens to us when we die, Jesus answers clearly about life. Now, what he does not do is speak of an immortal soul. Instead, he speaks of a covenant God with the power to bring life out of death. And as such, it is a clear affirmation that the God who cares for us in this age doesn't stop caring for us in the age to come because of a simple biological fact of death. And that is the first affirmation that we need to make. That God, who has cared for us every moment of our lives, does not stop caring when we die. That doesn't answer the question of how God raises us to new life. It just affirms that God does. The mechanics of resurrection are not important. The promise of resurrection is what is important. When God declared to be our God, when God called us and claimed us in our tradition, sealed in our baptism, all fear of death is put aside. Now the language of death and life that we encounter in the pages of scripture is the language of metaphor and mystery. In Paul's letters to the church in Corinth and Thessalonica, he writes of Christ's defeat of death. Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? In poetic prose, Paul reassured the early Christians that in matters of death and life, God remains firmly and undeniably God. So Jesus does not speak of an immortal soul. That comes from Shakespeare, by the way. Hamlet may speak of shuffling off a mortal coil, but Jesus does not. God is not sitting on a cloud in heaven waiting to see souls springing forth from dead bodies to make determinations of ping, 
heaven or crashed hell for each as it arises. I know that's a popular conception, but it is frankly unbiblical. But what is biblical is a covenant God who raises us to new life even from the dead. There's a big difference. The Bible, as I said, does not speak of the mechanics of life after death. The Bible speaks of the faithfulness of our covenant God. And that is the source of all hope, that God who has been faithful to us in this age does not allow the fact of death to end God's love for us. The resurrection is God's rejection of death. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ lies the hope of our own. Those are, after all, the words we recite at baptism, that just as we have been baptized with Christ into his death, even so are we raised to new life in his resurrection. Frankly, to get caught up, caught up on the fine points of the how is to miss the promise of the gospel. And so it is that we are called by Christ into a covenant life. We are called through our baptism into participation in the redemptive work of this age. Throughout all the pages of Scripture, we encounter a covenant God who works in every place and every time for reconciliation in the world, for redemption for broken circumstances, and in our baptism, we are made agents of Christ's reconciliation. In calling us to covenant, to be God's people, to live as God's witnesses to the resurrection, we are called to communion with God and with one another. Which is not to say that we are called to daily observance of the ritual of the breaking of the bread and sharing of the cup, though certainly we may be, which leads us to the second affirmation we need to make. It is to affirm that each time we come to this table and in all our meals and in all our living, we are called to lean in to the words, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Be together as God is with us, as Christ is with us, for the sake of our risen Lord. There's an old story that I've probably shared with you before. It's a favorite of mine. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the World Council of Churches, seeing a need for the church to contribute to the reconstruction of the world, sent three Scottish ministers to Greece. Why Scotland? Why Greece? I don't know. But as it happened, the three ministers arrived and were taken to the home of a priest in the Orthodox tradition. Seeing that these ministers had come for the purpose of bringing hope and to celebrate the end of the awfulness of war, the priest racked his brains to think of what he could offer to these visiting Scottish ministers by way of hospitality. And remembering an old bottle of wine down in his cellar, he rushed down and brought it up and in his language said, I have been saving this for a very, very long time. Will you please share it with me? Two of the Scots ministers looked very dour and said, Oh no, we don't drink. But the third took the outstretched glass of wine and drained it to the bottom and gave it back with a smile. 
The priest, not wanting the celebration to end, produced from a dusty shelf an old cigar box and blowing off the debris, pulled out cigars and offered them to the Scots ministers. And again, two of the ministers declined, oh no, we don't smoke. But the third minister took the offered cigar and the priest lit them and they lingered into the evening, savoring the stale cigars and blowing smoke up at the stars. And as the ministers left, as they were driving away, the two ministers rounded on the third and said, what were you thinking? We don't drink. We don't smoke. And the third, turning to them, replied, no, we don't drink, and we don't smoke, and I don't drink, and I don't smoke, but one of us needed to act like a Christian. That is what it is to be called to covenant, to be called to communion. It is to meet one another where we are and to be with one another as Christ is with us. It is to be called at all times in this life and the life that is to come to be about the work of the kingdom, the saving, redeeming work of reconciliation. It is in that sense that all of our lives are sacramental. All of our lives can stand as a visible sign of an invisible grace. All of our acts can carry the divine promise of the hope of the resurrection. And living thus, we are joined to the great cloud of witnesses that we celebrate on days like this, those who went before us and those who will come after us. Living thus, we remember those who taught us what it is to be a Christian. And we remember those who taught them, even as we make an ongoing promise to teach through our living what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we live every bit as much in a world of gotcha games and one-upsmanship as those Sadducees and Pharisees did when they came to Jesus asking about how the practice of leveret marriage gets lived out in God's perfect shalom. I don't know they were prepared for the answer they got. But if, like them, we lose sight of the covenant God, we too will only find that in God's perfect shalom, such imperfect solutions are not only unnecessary, they are irrelevant. Indeed, I wonder if we seek to live our lives as a sacrament of thanksgiving, just how much of what seems to be of paramount importance might instead come to seem not just unnecessary, but irrelevant. The Bible does not speak of the mechanics of life after death, only of the promise of God's sustaining care. It is enough. The Bible speaks of the mechanics of life during life. That is a calling to covenant and communion, to be with one another as Christ is with us. And it is 
enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
saints throughout the ages, let us together confess the faith of the Church. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us, for the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. You are invited to come forward with your offering now, or at the end of the service, or online.
let us pray. Eternal God, from the abundance of your creation, we have all that we need. And so we return this portion, asking once more that you would bless it and use it, and that we might see your kingdom at work among us, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the Lord, and Scripture teaches that people will come from east and west and north and south to sit at table with our risen Savior, which is simply another way of saying that there is a place set at this table for absolutely everyone. This is not a Presbyterian table. It does not belong to the church. It belongs to none but Jesus Christ, who is its unseen host, who invites us all to come and to know him, just as the disciples first recognized the risen Lord as he broke bread and blessed it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. Even still, we are invited to come with our eyes open and to meet our risen Savior, who promises rest to all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. So come, dear friends, to the joyful feast. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. It is truly right and our greatest joy to give you thanks and praise, O Lord our God, creator and ruler of the universe. We praise you for saints and martyrs, for the faithful in every age, who have followed your Son and witnessed to his resurrection. From every race and tongue, from every people and nation, you have gathered them into your kingdom. You have shown them the path of life and filled them with the joy of your presence. How glorious is your heavenly realm, where the multitude of your saints rejoice with Christ. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels, with prophets, apostles, and martyrs, and with all the faithful of every time and place who forever sing to the glory of your name. You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Sent to be our Savior, he took our flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. His words are true, his touch brings healing. To all who follow him, he gives abundant life. When evil sought to destroy him and he lay in the darkness of death, you raised him from the grave. He is our risen Lord forever. 
So remembering all your mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this wine from the gifts you have given us and celebrate with joy the redemption won for us in Jesus Christ. Accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as a living and holy offering of ourselves that our lives may proclaim the one crucified and risen. Great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your Spirit, unite us with the living Christ and with all who are baptized in his name, that we may be one in ministry in every place. As this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. Number us among your saints, O God, and join us with the faithful of every age, who strengthened by their witness and supported by their fellowship, we may run with perseverance the race that is set before us, and may with them receive an unfading crown of glory when we stand before your throne of grace. Give us the strength to serve you faithfully until the promised day of resurrection, when with the redeemed of all the ages, we will feast with you at your table in glory. Hear us, O Lord, as we offer our thanksgiving for the, the lives of those saints departed from among us. Ada Allen, Ralph L. Archibald, Peggy Ballou, Michael Bennett, Elise Bloomberg, Chester Burgess, Catherine Palick Cartwright, John Sinelli, Shana Clementi, Bob Cole, William Eberhardt, Shazie Eggman, Michael Philip Gardner, Jane Hildreth, Ruby Hairston, Ray Allen Horton, Jenny Isaacson, Anna Maria Manetti, Virginia Mezeboff, Ashley White Morgan, Sally Murphy, Marjorie Paris, George A. Rogers, Daniel Zumal, Betty Telfer, Marguerite Valerie, Jerry Valerie, Roy West, John Whitmer. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, almighty God, now and forever. Hear us together as we pray the prayer you taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
In his name we do this. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Savior took bread. And when he had given thanks, as we had done in his name, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after they had supped, he took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes again. Beloved, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let us keep the feast.
Let us pray once more. Eternal God, we thank you and we praise you that in love you have reached across the abyss of our sin to bring us once more into your loving embrace, having thus been fed at Christ's table. Send us now to be Christ's body. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. go as God's beloved who have been to Christ's table in the sure and certain knowledge that you will return to it in this life or in the life that is yet to come 
And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.